We are in the middle of a sermon series as we're walking through the books of First and Second Peter. As we've done this, we understand that First Peter really is all about our living hope as God's people, a hope that rests in the gospel of who we are, that we are God's chosen people, his holy nation, his royal priesthood, and that we have an inheritance that is ready for us and that is imperishable and unfading. That is our living hope, that we are secure in God's hands, that all our sins are forgiven. We are the recipients of his mercy and grace. And it is that living hope that empowers his people through his spirit to live in this world that is oftentimes hostile or turned against God's people. And certainly we feel that in our generation as uh, this, the kingdom of this world seems to grow more and more uh, hostile towards the kingdom of Christ. And resist his ways. And we are now in the middle of Peter's letter where having explained to us that we have this hope, he is now explaining how we are to live as his people in light of the gospel. And so the question that we ask as we come to this then is, does the gospel influence all your life? I pray that it does. Let us look to our text this morning, which is First Peter 3. Chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 7, as Peter now gives instructions that are certainly countercultural. So listen to these words from the Lord. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would uh, speak to us this morning, that you would work in our hearts through the power of your spirit, that you would make us receptive to your truth, and that as we receive it, we would learn and we would grow and be renewed in our faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I ask the question here, does the hope of the gospel in your life as a Christian influence how you live your life? And for a growing number of people in the world today, 
even Christians, uh, they would say that it does not. A recent study was conducted by Barna in conjunction with Arizona Christian University of the millennial generation, and we're not picking on millennials because I think you can find these issues with any generation. But among those surveyed, what they found was that 63% mostly lean on personal emotions, past experiences, and the advice of other people when making moral choices in their lives. And again, that included a large number of those who profess to be Christians. And what that means is that we are living in a society where people are more inclined to follow their own subjective selves rather than the objective truth of God's revealed word to us in the Bible. And since that is true... It means that while people may claim to follow Christ, there is very little evidence that the gospel has actual significant influence on how they live their lives and how they relate and what their overall goals for themselves are. And though I am not convinced that this is something that is new, because I think if you go through all of history you find that we as humans, because of the effects of sin, have always chosen to follow our own feelings rather than God's unchanging truth. I mean, idolatry is the default nature of the human heart apart from the work of God's grace. And idolatry influences how people live and the relationships that they form. And one area that that is loudly evident, especially today, is marriage. Marriage is an institution that was ordained by God, designed for human flourishing in his created world. And as such, he defines what marriage is. For he is the creator, he is the designer of the institution itself, and he declares how it is to function, that being one man and one woman married for life to reflect the glory of God. And yet... From the moment of the fall into sin, we see that sin has wrecked havoc upon relationships between men and women and upon marriages and even gender and how we understand our function and role in gender and in society. And thankfully, though, into the mess of this world that we have made as humans comes Jesus Christ. And into our messy marriages and our struggling relationships and our our brokenness and our sinful failures comes the beauty of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter has been showing us, as I've already noted, how the gospel is a, a paradigm for how we as God's people are to live in this world that is often hostile towards us because of our faith. And that paradigm is the very suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. It is a good thing, as we saw last week, when we suffer for our faith, it is gracious in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus willingly subjected himself to the cross so that we might die to sin, to live to righteousness, as Peter told us in chapter 2 and verse 24. For it is by Christ's wounds we are healed. And so what that means then is even by his wounds, 
our marriage relationships are healed. By his wounds, all our relationships can be healed. All the sinful, broken, selfish ways that we think about ourselves as men and women finds healing in the grace of Christ as we know the forgiveness of our sins. And so Peter's instructions here to wives and husbands is for all of us, whether we are married or not. And I know there are many of us here that are not married, but I would encourage you to listen in as we look at what God has to say for us this morning, because I think what we see here is how the power of the gospel really does transform relationships and how we live and think about ourselves and how we relate to one another. So Peter begins with a word for wives. And I mentioned last week how this section of 1 Peter, which begins back in verse 18 of chapter 2, it follows this pattern of a typical household code of uh, the Greco-Roman world of Peter's day. And household codes, of course, were written by many philosophers and uh, both Greek and Roman, and they were designed to give moral instructions for the maintaining of the socioeconomic structure of the day, which really was structured around the household. Peter, however, writes in a way, and we saw this last week, where he imparts the grace of the gospel into the common structures of his day to subvert the pagan and evil and ungodly structures like slavery, but do it in a peaceful way by dignifying those who are thought to have little value in society because the gospel lifts us up. It restores us to who we are as God's image bearers. And if you recall, we saw back in verse 18 that Peter addressed directly slaves, bypassing their masters, which nobody did that in his day. He spoke straight to them to emphasize that they indeed were free in Christ and that they were equal with all other people, no matter what their society said of them. And that very same thing is happening now as he speaks to wives. Women, like slaves, were never addressed directly in these Greco-Roman household codes. They were always addressed through their husbands. And it reflected the way that people thought in that time, that men were inferior to women and that women were incapable of receiving direct instructions. But Peter speaks right to them here. He says, likewise, wives. He is lifting them up and showing them that in Christ they are of great value. Women in God's kingdom are not on any lower footing than men. All are equal in his eyes for all are created by him in his image. And he calls both men and women to the same gospel through the same grace. They are both, as Peter says in verse 7, heirs of the grace of life. Furthermore, Peter makes the point that this subjection that he calls women to well, wives to, to their husbands, is a matter of their own volition. That is to say, they are choosing by God's grace, 
to be subject to their husbands. While it is true that this uh, position or this, this calling is rooted in God's created order, for we see it played out in the Garden of Eden, we also understand that husbands are never to demand this subjection from their wives, but wives will willingly give it for the glory of God. You see that Peter says here to be subject, he says, to your own husbands. He's actually limiting this idea of subjection done. A woman does not owe this subjection to any other man but her husband. And again, this was so contrary to the uh, system, the socioeconomic system of Peter's day, which placed all women under all men. But we then come to the, the proverbial elephant in the room because this is, sounds so countercultural. What does he mean when he tells wives, be subject or submit to your own husbands? That sounds so oppressive to our modern ears. Well, first let me explain what he's not saying. Because unfortunately, texts like this and others have been used by people even within the church to cause harm and damage to to many women. Many women have been hurt and abused by the twisting of this text. So here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that subjection or submission means that you need to agree with whatever your husband says. Um, Certainly there are plenty of times wives should not agree with their husbands. He's not saying that a wife must do whatever her husband wants all of the time. Nor does it mean she cannot have her own opinions and ideas or thoughts. She is free to disagree and should. It does not mean that if a husband is abusive or has been unfaithful to his wife, that she has no recourse and must remain with him. Nor is submission putting up with verbal abuse and humiliation. A husband does not own his wife. He is not her king. He is not above her. So what does Peter mean here then when he says, wives, submit to your own husbands? What is healthy biblical subjection? Well, notice first, he he doesn't give a lot of details. He kind of expects husbands and wives to figure that out to some extent on their own. But he does give us some insight. And to do that, we have to look at the context. Back in chapter 2, Peter instructs us, and this is all believers, he says, keep, remember this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And he then immediately, after giving those instructions, tells believers to be subject to what? To every human institution, meaning the civil powers, the civil magistrate. And in doing that, they would close ignorant mouths. It would be a powerful testimony against those who were accusing believers of being troublemakers and insurrectionists. He would silence them. This teaching then is followed with the beginning of this household code. And as we saw last week, he instructed Christian slaves to be subject to their masters 
enduring suffering, if need be, for their faith, which was gracious in the sight of God. And God would use that in a powerful way, eventually, to overcome the institution of slavery. And then he comes into the home, and he gives similar instructions as he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And what we see in every one of these cases where he is calling for subjection or submission, this principle of Christian submission, is that it is tied to this idea of conduct, of living my life in light of who I am in Christ so that God would use me to bring about his purpose to redemption in this world. And so here he's speaking specifically to Christian wives who have unbelieving husbands, though he doesn't mean just wives of unbelieving husbands are to follow in this practice of submission. Uh, Notice he says that it is uh, some husbands that did not obey the word. So the implication is there are some that do. But the principle remains the same in both cases. And he says, for those of you, those wives who have unbelieving husbands, which was very significant because in the Greek uh, world that they lived in, Peter's original audience, a wife was expected, it was demanded of her to take her husband's religion. And so if a woman became a Christian by the grace of God, it certainly was perceived to be an act of rebellion. And yet Peter says, look, be subject, be submissive, do not rebel, because through your conduct, you might win your husbands without a word being spoken. In fact, this word that he uses here to speak of unbelieving husbands is one that speaks not just of unbelief, but open hostility to the gospel. And yet through the conduct of their wives, they would be one. What kind of conduct? Peter tells us it's respectful and it is pure. By respectful, he actually means reverence directed towards God. And purity, of course, speaks of a way of life that reflects the holiness that Christ puts in our heart. As we saw earlier in Peter, when he said, be holy as I am holy, it's, it's living in step with the gospel. And so this submission then, what we understand, it isn't actually part of a woman's being. She isn't made submissive. It is something she does. It's her role, her responsibility, her function. It is an action. It is her conduct that reflects the holiness of God, living for the glory of God in such a way that proclaims his excellencies to the world and particularly to unbelieving husbands. As Peter says, God can use that action that spirit, that conduct to soften the hard hearts of these unbelieving husbands without a word being spoken. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the word of God is unnecessary for someone to come to faith. We know that it is. But the point is, is that these actions of these godly wives are used by God as a means of grace to draw people to faith. 
You know, church history has an interesting example of this, and there are many of them. But you've heard the name Augustine before, or Augustine. I think it's Augustine. You can fight me on that if you want later. But Augustine's mother was a faithful Christian. Her name was Monica. And for many years, she prayed for her husband, who was an unbeliever. You can read this in Augustine's Confessions. And she pled with him and prayed with him. She did not leave him, even though he was a hard man. She worked with him. And finally, finally, towards the end of his life, he repented of his sin. And he became a believer because of the faithful prayers, the good conduct, the love of one woman who reflected very much what Peter's talking about here. That's the powerful testimony of a godly woman. It can change the world. And that is very much in line with God's redemptive purposes in this world. In fact, it's, it's, it's a reversal of sorts of what we saw with Eve and Eden at the fall. During the fall into sin, as Eve took the forbidden fruit, she gives it to her husband, causing him to sin as well. And in that moment, she is not fulfilling this role that Peter is calling wives to. She is not being submissive to her husband and showing that good conduct. She's not embracing her responsibility that God has ordained for her as a woman in marriage. She's doing the opposite. She's influencing Adam in a way that led him away from God's revealed law and into full disobedience and rebellion. And as a result, and that's not to absolve Adam, obviously not, he sinned as well. But as a result, God tells Eve that as part of the curse that came because of that sin, he says in Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And the desire here is a desire to control, to subvert, to take power, and to use her husband in a way that does not conform to God's original design for marriage. And so we see that, yes, sin wrecked havoc upon marriage from the very beginning. And from that time forth, all marriages have suffered because of it. Many of the conflicts in our lives, in our married lives for men and women, come from not embracing in faith the roles that God has called us to do. But then steps in Jesus and changes all of that. You see, it is the transformed life, a life transformed by the gospel that gives women the power to live in such a way to embrace God's original design for them and win even their unbelieving husbands to the faith. We get a fuller picture of what that looks like in verses 3 through 4 of this life that is resting in the living hope of the gospel. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And the point he's getting at here is that the true beauty of a 
woman is not her outward adornment, rather the adornment of the gospel, the grace of Christ in which she is clothed. It's important to note here that he isn't forbidding actual uh, outward external adornment. That is perfectly acceptable. But the command here, the emphasis here is one of focus. Where is your heart? What is it that you treasure? Where do you put your most uh, energy and emphasis of life? Is it on that external person or is it upon the grace of Christ in your heart? In Peter's culture, much like our own today, was obsessed with outward expressions of beauty. And I, I think that's consistent through all cultures, through all time. The world constantly puts emphasis on outward expressions of beauty rather than the inward expressions of the grace and the heart, that inward beauty of the heart. And of course, societal norms of that outward expression change from culture to culture. But there's always a constant pressure calling people, especially women, to conform to these outward external standards. And that call to make outward adornment be the standard of their beauty actually binds women. It robs them of their dignity that is theirs as God's image bearers. It puts pressure on women to measure up to a standard that they feel they can never fully achieve. And of course, that leads then to anxiety and depression and feelings of inferiority. And it's rather ironic because this, this call to outward expressions of individualistic adornment is more binding to women than God's original call to be submissive in spirit to their husbands. And yet the world doesn't see that. You see, the gospel confronts the cheap idolatry of the kingdom of this world by adorning the heart with the grace of Jesus Christ. And it is that grace that is liberating. True feminism is feminism that falls on the mercy of Christ and in faith obeys the good wisdom of God's created order. For it is the mercy of God in Christ that creates that inward imperishable beauty that Peter speaks of in verse 4, a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle speaks of kindness, graciousness, love, and a quiet spirit actually speaks of peace. It is that godly peace, that inward peace, that passes human understanding that only the gospel can bring. And it's that same peace that enables Christians even to suffer for their faith. It is a peace that is rooted in the living hope of our salvation. Peter then brings us to an Old Testament example of this spirit, of this good conduct. And he says in verse 5 through 6, he says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
Peter sets forth Sarah as an example of a wife who conducted her life in step with the gospel of grace, thus manifesting this kind and peaceful spirit. Holy woman, but he says here that is a synonym for believers, those who believed God's covenant promise. And so Sarah and these other holy women They submit to their husbands, not because they're inferior to them, but note what Peter says, because they hoped in God, they trusted in God. It came from their reverence for the Lord, their faith. I mean, Sarah is a great example of this because she is not a wallflower. She was not a weak woman. She was not timid or unable to think for herself. In fact, we see a lot of it in the book of Genesis where she stands up to Abraham, her husband. And there are probably some instances where she should have stood up to Abraham, her husband. But she was a strong woman. She became the mother of nations. And in Genesis 12, God called her husband Abraham to leave his hometown, leave his family, leave all that he was familiar with and all the idolatry that surrounded him and go to a land far away that God would lead him to. And he didn't exactly know where he was going. But based solely on the promise of God that would that, that God would make Abraham into a great nation and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, based solely on that promise, Sarah went with her husband. She followed him. She followed him through all the journeys and all of his failures in faith. And of course, Sarah herself was not perfect. In fact, we see that when God promises to Abraham and Sarah a son from whom would come a nation, and from that nation all the nations would be blessed because through that nation would come the Messiah who would bring light to all. And when Sarah hears that promise, what does she do? She laughs. She laughs at the promise of a son born to her in her old age. She laughed because she was wrestling with unbelief in her heart. And yet, despite the unbelieving laughter, what does she do? Peter says she still called Abraham Lord. She still followed him. She still kept on believing. You had this faith and this unbelief in her heart, and yet she continued to trust the Lord despite the laughter. And she embraced the role and the responsibility that God calls wives to embrace here in First Peter. And she follows Abraham, subjecting him, herself to him in faith. And it is that faith that rewarded her with a son, just as God promised. By means of an elderly woman, who faithfully embraced all that God called her to do, he moves his covenant of grace forward. Through her faith, Sarah became the spiritual mother of every one of us who are part of God's covenant people. And here's why I believe Peter brings up Sarah as an example for all believing women. Because it takes the faith of Sarah to do what God calls you to do as a woman in this text. 
Because the world tells you you are crazy if you follow the Bible's teaching on wives and husbands. But if you trust God as Sarah did, if you hope in God as Sarah and the other holy women hoped in God, God will use your faith, your gentle and quiet spirit to work great things for his kingdom. And so if you are married, embrace God's call to you as a wife in faith rather than fear. And if you are not married, do not heed the call of this world that lies to you and tells you that your value is only found in your own self-expression and you should just pursue how you feel about things rather than what God tells you to do. Trust the Lord to call you and use you as he used Sarah of old. Have faith in him. And let your beauty be the adornment of the gospel as God dresses you in his grace and his mercy. Now, what about husbands, though? Well, Peter has a word for them as well. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. His call to husbands is twofold here. He says, first, they're to live with their wives in an understanding way. And second, they are to show them honor. Great honor, actually. To, to live with wives, according to knowledge, is a reference to living with them according to God's will. It's a, it's a similar phrase to what Peter said earlier about suffering unjustly when mindful of God. That is that awareness of who God is, what he has done for you, what he is calling you to do. And so husbands are to live in that knowledge, living in knowledge of who they are, what their responsibility is before God as he has called them, what he has ordained for them. And that responsibility, of course, is to care and to respect and to protect their wives for the treasures that they are. It is a knowledge that also requires faith in the gospel, for it clings to the truth that God has given them wives according to his wisdom. Therefore, they should seek nothing other than what God has provided for them. It is a call to faithfulness, both to their wives and to the Lord. Secondly, Peter says they are to show honor to their wives as the weaker vessel. And that is not an insult in any way. In fact, it is a term meant to bring honor and value again to women. By weaker vessel, he does not mean to say that women are of lesser value than men, that they are intellectually, spiritually, or emotionally lower than them. They are not ontologically inferior. But it has more to do with physical ability than anything else. It's just biology. Basically, it's saying that women are different. They are built different. And for that reason, they ought to be protected because they are a special treasure. See, Peter's language here is designed to elevate women. To honor wives, men are called to view them differently than the world views them. They're called to elevate their femininity, to, to treasure them. When you have a treasure, something of high value, what do you do with that precious treasure? Well, you guard it 
You protect it. You care for it. You may even lay your life down for it. That's the idea here of honoring your wife. Peter is calling for men to honor their wives in a way that the culture and society of his time wouldn't have even dreamed of doing. After all, women were considered inferior. But he says, no, lift them up as the treasure that they are. And this honoring of them is also driven by the gospel. You see, it is Christ, it is in Christ that the real value, worth, and dignity of a person shines forth. And so Peter reminds husbands, he says, they are heirs, heirs of the grace of life with you. That is to say, they have the exact same living hope, the exact same unfading inheritance, the same salvation, the same Savior. Jesus saves equally no matter what your gender is, male or female. All who come to Christ in faith enjoy the same benefits of the gospel. And yet that is so fundamentally different than what the kingdom of this world preaches to us. Because while we live in a world that screams equality, it actually preaches inequality in a deafening tone. The world tells us we are not equal. That some of us are better than others because of gender or ethnicity or wealth or power or what we think or what we believe. But you see, in the kingdom of God, there is true equality because in Christ, all is made level. And Peter says, for that reason, as a husband, honor your wives as co-heirs of the grace of life. And then he gives another reason. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, it isn't clear here what prayers he is talking about. There's some debate amongst Bible scholars about that. I, I think what he's talking about here, though, is the prayer specifically that husbands would have for their wives. And think about it. If a man does not honor his wife as he should, as this precious treasure, and yet he's praying for her and praying perhaps she's an unbeliever, praying that she comes to faith, why should she be drawn to the gospel her husband proclaims to believe if he does not honor her as he is called to do by God's word? It makes his faith look rather cheap indeed. If he treats her poorly, if he abuses his authority by abusing her, if he is harsh, unkind, demanding, and unloving, then why should he expect God to answer any prayer of his on behalf for his wife? He is not obeying God's call to him. He is not embracing the role that God has given him and the responsibility that has been ordained for him by God's hand. And so here's what all this really comes down to, though. And this is true whether you are a man or a woman and whether you are married or unmarried. The role in which God placed you in and called you in can only be fulfilled by following Christ in faith. You must have the gospel. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. 
It is in the gospel that all of this actually becomes possible. It is in the gospel that we are able to embrace the roles that he has ordained for us. You see, Jesus embraced his role as Savior so that you can embrace the role for which God has designed you as a man or a woman. And when we do that as his people, it does proclaim the excellences, excellencies of him who called us into his kingdom. It does powerfully proclaim the goodness of the gospel that heals relationships and brings redemption through the, the unchanging truth of God in this ever-shifting world. And so husbands, honor your wives in the Lord. And wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord. And for those of you who are unmarried, do not find your identity and worth and value in yourself, but find it in the only person who can give you real dignity, Christ Jesus, our King. That is what Peter is saying here. Jesus embraced his role as Savior so that you can embrace the role that God gives you as his child for his glory. And through that, the church grows, the kingdom grows, and we do encounter the hostility of an unbelieving world. And God works in a great way to bring his redemption. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and this wisdom that is there, wisdom that we so often are tempted to neglect and ignore because it does not align with our own sense of who we are or what we should be doing. And yet we see, Father, that in your word, if you have made us your children, you have also called us to embrace your role for us, whatever that may be that we are to pursue with the faith of Sarah. Though we might have uh, struggles with unbelief, we press forward in faith, believing those promises, pursuing what you have called us to be for your name's sake. So help us as your people to do this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.